Hello, Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, the author Ryan Gaddis is here. He has written a terrific novel set against the backdrop of the Los Angeles riots of 1992 about gang life in South Los Angeles. It's called All Involved, and he is in the studio today to tell us about that book. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the editor without portfolio, the editor with all portfolios, the expert on Oscar Hammerstein, the hater of Hitler, Although the person fascinated by all things Nazi, Lori Weiner, you look great today. Well, what an introduction. Thank you. Good to have you here. And he is the founding editor of LARB. I call him the professor because that's what he is, along with being a balloon enthusiast, something very few people know about Tom Lutz. Tom, nice to see you today. Thanks. You know, I've been meaning to talk about the East L.A. Dirigible Transport Company, which I'm, I'm involved with. Today so, is your opportunity. Looking forward to it. We're very excited today because Ryan Gaddis is here. He's written a novel that we all have really enjoyed called All Involved. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks for having me. So before we dig in, uh, why don't you tell our listeners what does All Involved mean? Well, it basically means that everyone in the novel, but also everyone in the city, is involved. The city being Los Angeles. The city being case. Los Angeles, 1992, six days of the LA riots from April 29th to May 3rd. But it's also Chicano slang. It's gang slang. So if someone is involved, they're part of a gang. Also, the firemen, firefighters here in the county and in the city, uh, when something is on fire, they say that it's involved. So it, there's also uh, the implication that the entire city is on fire. And when over 11,000 fires were going on during those six days, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. It's a title with a lot of layers, which Michiku Kakutani kind of missed in her review in the New York Times. She was a very positive review, but she, she kind of like dissed the title a little bit, as I recall. I don't know what to say. Uh, I actually don't read reviews. My oh. wife reads them. Okay. But, uh, well, and then does she give you a seat of the... Only if I really need it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I try to avoid, if at all possible. You know, we should also point out that you are probably the only person who has ever induced Michiko Kakatani to drop a drug reference in a... <laughs> In a yeah. poll quote, uh, a she high called octane it speedball. a high-octane speedball of a read. That I is not, that, yeah. not New York Times speak. Wow. I'll take it. Your wife should have told you that yeah. one. <laughs> so this is an incredibly in-depth exploration of what was going on in South L.A. during the riots. You tell it from a number of different perspectives, white, Chicano, male, female. You're a white guy from Colorado. I think so much of it had to do with the research process being in South Central, in particular Linwood. Walk us through that. How did you come to be there? You know, I think in a way, it it all started with being part of a street art crew here in Los Angeles, Uglar Works. Uh, We're a certified mural artist for the city of Los Angeles, so we do plenty of work everywhere, in particular communities of need. So, you know, initially when I moved to L.A. in 08, I got told, you know, don't go this place, don't go that place. But when I was part of Uglar, and I still am, by the way, it was vital to go to City Terrace, Lincoln Heights, you know, South Central area. I mean, these were just places where we worked. I ended up doing, they called it an internship, 
because <laughs> I'm not a visual artist primarily. I'm obviously a writer. Uh, so when I did that, I, it was up to me to speak to every single person on the street who wanted to speak to the artists. Now we're running on a deadline. You know, they can't talk to every single person who walks up to them and is curious what we're doing. So it was up to me. And it, it ended up being a phenomenal uh, crash course in just how people speak, what they're interested in, and what they're up to. Uh, and I think that, that was a huge part of it. And of course, I ended up speaking to a number of former gang members and, and that really started the odyssey. That's a remarkably journalistic process. And do you have any background in, in that area? I don't. It reminded me about the book Catherine Boo, uh, the New Yorker journalist, mm -hmm. called Behind the Beautiful Forevers, about a shanty town in India. And she reported this book and told the story of these lives in remarkable detail and just really high-end journalism. Mm -hmm. And that's how your book read, although your book is fiction. Well, I heard you talk about this a little bit in your TED Talk, which was such an amazing scene that you painted. I think it would be a great movie scene, <laughs> which is, I'll, let me just say it in my way, but then I, I want you to tell. But the way it struck me was okay. you had entree, you had to meet uh, a guy who I'll call like the king of all the gangs. You had to go meet with him to get permission to then go and speak to all the gang members that you did speak to. And meeting with him, you were given a set of instructions, what you could and could not say and do. And one of them was, you know, be authentic, which of course is the hardest thing to do when you're nervous. Yeah. But could you describe that scene and how you got to him in the first sure. place? The way I got to him in the first place, I'd been speaking to a number of what I suppose you could say were street level former gang members for roughly three or four months. So it was no secret that I was speaking to people, you know, mainly just getting to know them, what their lives were like, how it was growing up for them in that era. Uh, so they talk as they do, and it, it traveled up the totem pole, so to speak. And then I basically was summoned, that was the word that was used, down to Linwood to speak to somebody. The big thing that really jumped out to me, the, the rule that I was given was you have to be 100% honest no matter what. Because absolutely, as you say, the impulse is to, especially when nervous, especially when worried, perhaps omit or to try to seem as important as possible. And I just wasn't able to do that. So I went down there. Uh, we met at a restaurant. They took my phone away from me. It was a, a very harrowing moment, I think. But the thing that was incredibly important about it is I shared my own story. I'm a survivor of violence myself. At 17 years old, I got hit so hard, my nose was effectively torn out of my face. I had two facial reconstructive surgeries. So being able to share that with someone who, in his case, absolutely has had some pretty terrible physical pain in his life, it, it just became a bridge that connected us. And, and to be honest, it didn't really matter where I was from after that. It didn't matter where he was from. Uh, it was more about being human together and, and really speaking the language of pain, if you could say it that way. Let's talk about the book itself. It's got 17 different narrators. That's a remarkable technical achievement, kind of bringing a story from you know beginning, middle to end through these very different lenses. Is that the structure you had in mind when you started? <laughs> no, absolutely not. You know, when I first started, it was only one character, Payasa, who mm -hmm. is the middle character of day one. When I wrote her, I knew I needed to write the stories of her siblings. So in a way, I, I kind of bumbled into this structure for each day, which is three characters, except, of course, for the final day, because the uh, 
curfew was lifted, so there were only two characters on the last mm-hmm. day. But honestly, if you had told me going into it, oh, yeah, you're going to write a book. There are going to be 17 different characters. Don't worry. It'll, <laughs> you'll be fine. I, I would have stopped. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even have gone after it. I would have been terrified. But I think being able to really start with the Veda family on day mm-hmm. one, and then I would take a break. I would take you about a month in between. And then I wrote day two, three more characters, and then I would take a break. That was the only way to do it. That was the only way I could see to do it. Because if I had written it all in one go, I think it might have just mashed together and the voices may have been too similar. How much rewriting did you have to do to get it right? You know, it's interesting. There was one particular character I rewrote probably 20 times. Which was the character? James. Uh Uh-huh. Day six, the homeless character. Yeah, I was living in downtown at the time on Fifth and Main, basically two blocks from Skid Row. I'm come from a military family. There are so many veterans on the streets, mm-hmm. you know, then that was, that remains an incredibly difficult and emotional thing for me to deal with. And I, I was really struggling with, with how to write him the right way. The others, there was very little rewriting. You know, I, I think I was really lucky. I had an amazing editor who, who really trusted me and, and pushed me here and there. But I think a few of these characters really did come out whole and then they helped negotiate the structure from there. And uh, we should say also, for people who haven't read the book, it goes forward in time and the narrators like kind of hand off the baton and take the story forward. Absolutely. And uh, I also, I, I haven't read a book with this many um, narrators. But, but you, quick, quickly, just yeah. parenthetically, we should also say it doesn't just move forward in a linear way. It doubles back and then goes forward again, mm-hmm. which is a really tricky thing to do when you're storytelling, playing with time like that. It's, it's an impressive accomplishment. I love when authors say, you know, the form was dictated for me by the book or the characters, because that that always means that it kind of got out of your control and went somewhere else, which is such an interesting kind of religious experience. But (laughs) it sounds like it was kind of dictated. You said there was no other way you could have done it. I mean, absolutely. I I definitely felt like I was just trying to catch up (laughs) at every moment. And I think maybe that's partially to do with the fact that it's it's a relatively pacey book. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was always yes, trying to things keep... are happening fairly quickly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was always trying to keep up with that. Uh, but you were trying to keep up with what was going on in your head with. Yes. I mean, w- with what was going on in my head and yet also making sure that it was connecting to the other stories. And each of the characters has a lot happening mm-hmm. very quickly over these six days. The, the entire city has a lot happening in yeah. those six days. So what yeah. makes the book unique to me is that you do such deep character work you're telling a really broad sociological story. And yet, because of the story you're telling, it has all of these action tropes baked in. Mm. So it just goes like, uh, I was going to say a house on fire, but that's kind of an unfortunate <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> kind of like a high-octane <laughs> speedball? Is that <laughs> speedball. Maybe that. That's well, what it reminded <laughs> me of. Where were you during the actual riots? You know, I was actually at home in Colorado Springs. I was 13, and I very strongly remember... Uh, the national news that first night on April 29th. I don't remember who the anchor was, mm-hmm. but I remember being told, you know, if you have a weak stomach, look away. And I, mm-hmm. I was just recently a teenager, so of course I didn't look away. I mm-hmm. leaned in, and mm-hmm. then they showed what happened to Reginald Denny at the intersection of Florence and Normandy, and I, of course, felt absolutely sick mm-hmm. that I had leaned into that and, and anticipated that because I thought, you know, for all the world, I'd actually seen a guy murdered on right. television. Right, so you were involved. Anna Devere Smith's Twilight, Los Angeles, uh, 1992, is a, is also a piece of art that yeah. attempts to 
kind of think through and see through the these events. And it also is based on a whole series of different characters. Yeah. Uh, was that an, an influence at all? Oh, it was a massive influence. I think, honestly, if I... It was such a big part of my research. I even quote the coroner <laughs> who makes oh, uh-huh. a really crazy statement in Anna Devere Smith's book. I put it in, in mind because I felt it was incredibly... Uh, touching and strange and odd. Well, tell us what it was. You know, he basically says that any murder that happens to be gang-related was not classified as riot-related, even if it happened during those six days, even if it happened in areas which were so obviously neglected in terms of emergency services or policing. Mm. So I disagree with it. Obviously, I think that kind of vacuum, you know, that allowed any number of crimes of opportunity to happen, those types of things. Honestly, I, I think they're they're there to, the coroner makes that distinction in a political fashion. Yeah. He's trying to keep numbers down. He's trying to make it look as if it isn't as bad as it was. Yeah, because it was worse. And if we truly were able to categorize that, we would find that the number is far above 60, not even close to 60. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you had both the kind of the journalist's instinct to find out what happened, but also there's a novelist's instinct that says you have a period of six days when there's no law enforcement at all and all bets are off and anything can happen. Almost four. I mean, when the National Guard came in, things really got locked down. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I mean, for a novelist, that's an incredible human experiment. But it doesn't sound like you were thinking about it that um, manipulatively. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) sure I I was. (laughs) Why not? Uh, I just tried to let my heart guide me more than anything at the risk of sounding very silly. I felt that the most important thing to do was really try to capture the pain of the era, the logic, in some cases, the cold-hearted logic of the crimes that went on, the vengeance that went on, and, and really do my utmost I was more concerned, perhaps journalistically, again, if we can even use that term, getting the language right, you know, getting the era right, making sure the music was right, making sure the clothing was right, the Mm -hmm. spirit of it, so to speak. But as far as being a novelist, I I wanted to weave that all together in a way that felt like it had some spiritual fidelity as well, as Mm -hmm. if it really may actually help tell a, a further, broader, deeper, stronger tale about the riots than the media were ever able to. And that's kind of the beauty of the novel as a form. I think it, it gives us the opportunity for breadth and, and poetry. My name is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. We are talking to the author of All Involved. His name is Ryan Gaddis. Stay tuned. There's a theory afoot in the world today about mm-hmm. it talks about who owns what story sure. and certain and, people don't have and who owns right, what language and who right. owns what languages sure. certain people are not entitled to tell certain stories and i personally don't uh, i don't adhere to that point of view mm-hmm. but but many people do and I, i'm curious to the degree that was in your mind and again to double back on the original question when did it hit you that you would tell it in the first person sure you know i think that was always on my mind. I think from the moment I first stepped into Linwood, from the moment I seriously decided that I wanted to write a book, uh, the most important thing was respect. 
100% respect at all times with everyone I spoke to. And then when I got to the page, when I actually started writing characters, again, the key is respect. And also to do honor to obviously an off-demonized subculture because in so many ways it's, it's criminal. But there's so much more to it than the ways in which it has been portrayed uh, in, in film, television, even other books. I frequently heard from people, oh man, this, is, this isn't right, or, or this over here. Or the, you know, and, and it was almost as if I was given this dynamic to work in, in, in terms of trying to really create the roundest, most relatable, but in some cases very difficult characters. The key is respect, you know, at, at every point. You know, people need to feel that, you know, I'm representing it in the, in the best way I possibly can. And the good news is this. I put my boots on the ground. You know, I've, I've sat down in, in some very difficult and in some cases very dangerous meetings in order to know uh, some of these subcultural details. I think th- there's something to be said for that. As far as, you know, deciding writing in the first person, you know, this is my first book in 10 years. And the reason why I think my career stalled and, and almost died was because I had been working so hard to write in the third person. Uh, I just don't feel connected as a writer unless I'm writing in the first person. And honestly, that allowed me to exercise the empathy that I was feeling, you know, to, to, to be able to sit down with a family at a table and, and have them talk to me about what it feels like to have a child die, an uncle die, uh, a cousin die. And, and, and be part of that and, and, and listen to that and then find ways to channel that grief into a story that can be affecting and, and moving to everyone else. I mean, that, that's, that's a sacred thing. It's a sacred thing, and it's a very difficult thing to do. I'm, I'm thinking about the movie Straight Out of Compton. Did, did mm. you see that movie? Yes. And on one level, I was very impressed by it because I thought it did give me some visceral kind of knowledge and insight into a world that I didn't understand enough. But on the other hand, I also felt after I saw the movie and I did some research, betrayed Mm. by the way that they, in order to make the protagonists, not heroes, but people that you wanted to identify with, they cut out, you know, huge segments about how they treated women. Mm-hmm. Just cut it right out because mm-hmm. otherwise you wouldn't want to see this movie about these people because you would hate them. This is my, what I think. And so that in order to get people's attention and focus on the story, they had to cut out part of the ugliness. Or in a way, I guess that there are times at which respect trumps truth um, mm-hmm. or can. Wow. <laughs> That's a... It's a tough one because we're mm-hmm. dealing with, with two different things here. I completely mm-hmm. hear what you're saying in terms of uh, straight out of Compton. And in, in some cases, I think we're dealing with a, a piece of art that is, in, in some ways, works as a hist- historical document written by the winners. You know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. some of the very folks who are portrayed in the film were actually producers on the film. So as a result, Absolutely. there's a vested interest yes. in portraying it a certain way. Mm-hmm. I, I think in a, in a case like All Involved, my vested interest was portraying it in a way that was as real as possible in that, you know, certainly there are elements of violence in the book. The riots were a very violent time. But I wanted people to have hows and whys that maybe they hadn't considered before or understood before or even thought about before. One more thing about the novel. My, my role on the, on the show here is to be the super nerd. And so okay. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a theory of... Um, by a guy named uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, a literary theory about the novel, in which he says the novel is is a kind of symphonic form, mm. in which the each of the instruments is is a, is a way of speaking. 
And what the great novelists do is they make a kind of um, a piece of art out of a collage of ways of speaking, a collage that has movement and, and development and like a symphony does. And that's what I felt uh, reading this as well, that you were really kind of building a... It's sociological, but there's no sociological data. It's a sociology of ways of speaking. And I'm wondering, were you taking notes? Were you writing ways of speaking down? As somebody who some represents people's speech uh, in my own writing, I know it's the thing that decays fastest. I'll remember sure. somebody's face long after I can't quite remember exactly the way they phrased something. Sure. Well, I think in some of the most difficult meetings I had with people, I was never allowed a notebook and I wasn't allowed mm-hmm. a phone. So it was a scenario where I really had to work on my listening skills to the point where I would try to grab everything I possibly could. And then the second I was near a computer, just spit it out. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most important things about it is I, I did have a couple people who were just genuine readers who grew up in that life, who were able to help me temper that after the fact, after mm-hmm. I'd actually written something, I mm-hmm. could run it by them almost always orally, you know, well, what yeah. about this? And, and, yeah. and this word had the way this is used. And, you mm-hmm. know, and, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of the language in the book is no longer how people speak. Right. Right. Yeah, so that way it, it, it was right. a really interesting project simply as far as that was concerned, mm-hmm. but I did everything I could, but I, I have to say, I think there was, there was something really important and, and vital and visceral about those restrictions, if you will, those obstructions about not being able to to take notes and, and rely on the paper and, and only be able to rely on the eyes and ears. And also su- super technical question here along the lines of what Tom was asking regarding depicting dialect. Mm. I was I was looking for ain't. I was looking for double negatives. Mm. I wasn't seeing any of that. And I'm wondering, were you consciously scrubbing those kind of things out? I don't think it was an issue of consciously scrubbing. The difficult thing about speaking to people almost in present day, I mean, I wrote this about two years ago now, is that they've grown up and their, their language might have changed a bit as a result of that and, and in some cases become more proper, if you will. It was a scenario where I just wanted to create the greatest flow I possibly could. And I also felt, at least consciously from an authorial perspective, it was really important to me to make sure the reader never confused or thought of these characters as stupid. There are different types of intellect. There are different types of ways to show that. And, and one of the ways I wanted to show that was through action, but also through speech. And, and 90% of the time, at least when, when the former gang members or when the gang members are speaking in the book, you know, you're dealing with issues where maybe 20% of what people want is communicated and the other 80% is nonverbal, mm-hmm. and people just have to pick up on it or suffer the consequences. And in some cases, I found that to be very true to that world. Talk a little bit about how the book has been received in the community that you were writing about. Sure. I think, I mean, Linwood, I, I've said this before. I mean, Linwood is just my heart. You know, I, I still spend a lot of time there. I go to the high schools there. I've, been, I've spent time in the middle school there. It is a very fascinating experience that I'm, I'm still kind of processing and struggling to put into words, but, but to speak to parents and uncles and, you know, folks who, who lived during admittedly the most dangerous time in LA's history. And it's almost as if without even speaking to each other, they've made this decision. Our kids are not going to be raised the way we were raised. 
And so going to Fireball High School now, going to Linwood Middle School now, it's it's a very different experience. And these kids, when I even talk about the riots, they have no idea. They have no idea mm. what I'm talking about because their parents never spoke about it. But it it is fascinating simply from the point of view of, I'm from Colorado Springs. Where I grew up, no one was a writer. No one. I didn't even know that was a job you could do. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist. So one of the things I try to do when I go into the schools is just be there, be accessible, answer questions, talk about what my professional life is like, what I do, and then ideally potentially provide opportunities, you know, in terms of the arts for kids to either get out of the neighborhood or just learn more. So we went recently to Richard Cabral's one-man show at Inner City Arts, and we brought a group from Linwood Middle School, and it was extremely powerful. And it's, at least for me, moving forward, I I see, you know, my perhaps authorial career very much tied into Linwood and and trying to find ways to to represent it with not just respect, but uh, also potentially create opportunities for others. Are you working on the next book? I am. Okay. Can you, <laughs> do you feel superstitious about talking about no, it? No, no, because I finished a draft. Oh, so okay. it's okay. there. It's not going to change. It's actually called Safe. And it's about a safe cracker who works with uh, the DEA, the FBI, the sheriffs. Uh, he has decided on the day before the stock market crashes in 2008 that it doesn't matter what's in this particular safe that he's been tasked to open, he's taking it. Now, he has it in his mind that, you know, these particular drugs belong to a a relatively nonviolent group from Mexico. I don't even think you can call them a cartel. And they used to exist. (laughs) Emphasis on past tense. Mm -hmm. And he thinks, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. You know, this this will work out. And that is not who he ends up stealing from. And (laughs) what happens is, in a way, I suppose it's, it's a road novel within the city of L.A. because I think L.A. is probably one of the only places you can actually do that an entire city but with that that travel and uh i think it's also a robin hood story uh-huh. that sounds very interesting <laughs> all right the book is all involved it's terrific you should read it ryan gaddis thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me time for thank yous today. And first, I'd like to thank our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. I want to say uh, a shout out to Aviva de Kornfeld, who uh, helped us with scheduling this episode. She is no longer with us. She's not dead. She's scheduling, scheduling czar emeritus. She has left for greener pastures. Thanks to associate producer Jim Lane. Thanks to Alan Minsky. Thanks to the people at Emerson College who let us use their beautiful studio every week. And finally, every week I say thank you to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin. And this is going to be the last time I'll be saying that because Jerry is leaving. He has found something he'd rather do. Hard as that is to believe. Hard as that is to believe. He's Why is le- everyone leaving us? I know. First Aviva and now Jerry. He is, he is leaving us in his wake, in his jet stream. He is gone. He's been an absolutely fantastic producer. Jerry, it's been a pleasure working with you. Your, your work ethic, your sense of humor, your, uh, your just showing up every week and bringing the A-game. 
I know I really appreciate it. Lori, would you like to make a joke at Jerry's expense now? Absolutely not. Jerry, hats off to you. You have been superb to work with, and we will miss you very much. Jerry, don't cry. <laughs> we will miss you, and uh, we really appreciate the, the work you put into this. You've made the LARP Radio Hour so much better than it would have been if it had just been the three of us. We know that. Jerry, it's been terrific working with you. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. And if you're there, give us a rating. It helps people find the show. Follow us on Twitter. We'll be here next week. Will you? For Lori Weiner, Tom Lutz, this is Seth Greenland. Later. You know, it occurs to me that Jerry was, we always called him our moral conscience. Does this mean we no longer have a conscience? I would say we are adrift. We are amoral. We are somewhere tumbling through the universe without any basis for deciding right or wrong. Lori, In other would you, words, would it's you agree? Tuesday. Yes. <laughs>